Continue to pray as we go into the Lord's Word and try to share His Word with you this morning. My message is entitled, The Trinity as a Tri-Unity. And our hope this morning is to survey passages from the four Gospels in particular that express to us the great unity in the Trinity when we say Trinity, the last syllable, the last two syllables of that word has reference to the great unity that we find within the Godhead. Now, just by way of introduction, I had the privilege over the course of this weekend to share a a series of devotions with some youngsters, many of whom are here today, on the subject of the Trinity, the three-in-one Godhead. Now, might I just say that it's commonly believed in the world today that youngsters can't grasp concepts such as the Trinity or the nature of God, or the character of God. But I want you to understand that youngsters can understand the Trinity. Youngsters can understand, as much as we can understand, about God's nature, about the essence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They can understand and comprehend words like God's sovereignty, His omnipotence, His omniscience, they can understand the same things that we can understand, and that's why we feel it's so important that they're with us here in the congregation each and every Sunday, because God has given them a mind to be able to understand things sometimes a whole lot easier than you and I can understand things. Now, how many of you have asked your young children to try to figure something out for you on the computer? Some of you grandparents probably have children that are in elementary school that are better at using the electronics in your home than you are. They can understand an iPhone better than I can understand an iPhone or a smartphone better than I can or a laptop better than I can. Suddenly I think they can't understand the deep mysteries of the Word of God. No, they can. And praise Him that He gives them understanding in those things. But over the course of this week, this weekend, I had the opportunity to speak to this great group of young people about the Trinity, the three-in-one Godhead. And I'll just say that any time a minister devotes that much time at once on speaking of such a great subject as that, it's going to be a part of his thought process for a while, and that for good reason. And so today, with God's blessings, we'd like to speak to you about the great unity and harmony that we find between and among the three persons of the Trinity the Godhead, as it were, as depicted in the Gospels. Now, as far as the word Trinity, when we say Trinity, we have reference to the nature of God Almighty. The Oxford English Dictionary defines this English word as the state of threefoldness, the state of threefoldness. In theological use, applied to the existence of one God in three persons, one God In three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, constituting one God, the triune God. Now, fathom that that came from a secular dictionary for just a moment. But that is what this great word Trinity has reference to. It's not a Bible word, necessarily. You don't find the word Trinity in Scripture. You do find the word Godhead as an English word that describes the Trinity, God in His completeness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God of gods, King of kings, and Lord of lords. But this word Trinity is derived from a very popular and sometimes contested passage in our day and age among more modern textual critics, the book of 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. 1 John 5, 7 says that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. These three are one. The word Trinity comes from this great concept that we read in 1 John 5, 7, that Almighty God is three who are one. And so there is a tri-unity, a threeness that is also one within God himself. The nature of God, the existence of God, his eternal existence is one of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of these three persons are co-eternal. What does that mean? It means that 
Just as much as God the Father has existed for eternity, God the Son has existed for eternity, and God the Spirit has existed for eternity. Some of the earliest errors that threatened Christianity were over the nature of the Son of God. It was debated among the Gnostics if he was a lesser deity, or the Arians if he were a created being, but Scripture emphatically declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Word of God, that is the second person of the Godhead. Christ is deity, and Christ is divine. They are co-eternal, meaning that none was before the other, and none is after the other. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are eternal. The nature of God is this threefold eternity, this triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the same time, all three persons of the Godhead are co-equal. Co-equal. It's sometimes debated in our modern time if Christ is somehow in glory subordinate to the Father. Now, when Christ was in his ministry, he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He took upon the form of of a servant. And Christ, as the Son of God, yet the Son of Man, as he lived here, he humbled himself, though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And he was in every way submissive to the will of the Father. But please understand, in glory, in the economy of the Godhead, as it were, a theological term that's beneficial to know, Christ... The Father and the Holy Spirit are all co-equal. There is not a a hierarchy of authority in the Godhead, but they are co-equal, co-eternal. None of the three are greater or lesser than the other, but they are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're eternally that way. An old word that was found in the Greek language when Christians spoke primarily Greek is Omosion. And sometimes in the modern way of pronouncing that among those who study scripture, it's pronounced homoousion, but Greeks would say omosion. And so that's the way that we'll pronounce it today. That word translates into the English language, and I want you to listen to this, as same essence or same substance. The omo there is the word from which we get the word homo. And then that second phrase there means substance or essence. And that word was used by early Christian theologians to express the concept that the Son of God is the same essence as God the Father. What are they telling you? That Christ is divine. That God himself took upon human flesh And dwelt among us. The same essence as the Father. We'll consider scripture in a minute that says as much. But we should understand that Christ is literally God manifest in the flesh, the same substance. The dissenters to biblical orthodoxy in that day added a single syllable to that word in between those two words. And it's the the word, the letter rather, I, that we would say in English... Iota, in the Greek language, it would actually be pronounced iota. If you've ever heard the expression, there's not one iota of difference between the two, it comes from that Christian controversy because those that denied the deity of Christ placed that iota there to convey the thought that he was of similar substance but not the same substance. And the Orthodox won out the battle and God preserved that truth through his church until our very present day, that Christ is not a similar substance to the Father, but Christ is the same substance. When you hear the word, there's not an iota of difference, or the phrase rather, there's not an iota of difference, understand that comes from that controversy. Every time you hear that thing, there's not an iota of difference in the nature between the Father and the Son, the essence, the substance of the Father and the Son. You might wonder if that's biblical or merely traditional. The book of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 said that in Christ dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Godhead being the biblical word for Trinity. In Christ was all the fullness of the Trinity bodily. God was manifest in human form in the person of Christ Jesus. Now as we 
direct our focus to the primary point that we want to consider today, and there are several examples of this and subpoints, if you will, subheadings that we want to share with you. By the way, if you're visiting with us today, we'd love to end our sermons at least by 1.30 Central Time. <laughs> Just kidding. We hope to be done at lunch because that's when we eat and I get hungry too. The first point that we want to consider is the harmony and oneness of purpose of the Trinity. And we're going to share with you so many different glimpses into this, for lack of a better term, relationship between Father and Son, and Holy Spirit, the inner workings of the Godhead and the Trinity on display from the Gospels. We want to begin all of that by looking to the harmony and oneness of purpose of the Trinity. Now, why is that an important thought to understand? There's not ever a disagreement in the least between Father, Son, and Spirit in the will of God. But God is united in all of His purposes, Father, Son, and Spirit. Focus on the last of that word trinity, try what? Try unity. And so in everything, in the mind and purpose of God, there's complete unity, complete harmony of purpose. If it is God the Father's will, it is God the Son's will, it is God the Spirit's will, there's never a moment when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit desire different things. But they are completely in harmony one with another. By the way, what does it mean to be a godly person in the world? It means that my will is brought into conjunction or agreement with God's will. What then is Christ's likeness in the world? Christ's likeness is when my will is brought in agreement or accord with God's will, and you never find a greater example of godliness and subjecting our will to the Father's will than you'll find in the person of Christ Jesus as he walked here in the world. There's complete harmony of purpose in the will of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This pertains to our salvation, but it also pertains to events that we see around us in time and in the world. We see this on display all the way back, even in the book of Genesis chapter 1. If you want a great study of the triune God, you don't have to turn but to the very first chapter of the Holy Bible. In the beginning, God created the Heaven and the earth, the earth was void and without form. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. You find God, you find the Word of God, that is the living Word. God said, and it is created. The Word is the active agent in creation, according to John 1. And then you find the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 1. The very opening statements of the Word of God communicate this great truth to us. But I want you to notice something in verse 26. And God said, Now when I talk to myself, which I do, and by the way, in a post-COVID world, we no longer wear masks. Might I suggest people can see when you talk to yourself in stores now? I was walking through Home Depot last week talking to myself about what I was looking for and what I couldn't find, and it suddenly dawned on me, everyone there can see me talking to me. But when I talk to myself, it's I, and what am I looking for, where can I find this, and I'm mumbling all the way through Home Depot like an insane person. When God speaks, and God speaks to himself, I want you to notice this. God said, let us make man in our image. Now, that's peculiar, is it not? We know emphatically that Adam, this first man, is made in the image of God. That's why it's wrong to hurt another human being. That's why human beings are worthy of dignity and respect and compassion, because they are at minimum made in the image of God. If they are born of the Spirit, well, they possess the very nature of Christ, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. When God creates... Human beings, he says, let us make man in our image. God refers to himself, speaking to himself as us. Now, is there, are there more than one God in existence? No, God alone is God. There is none before him. There will be none after him. He alone is God. But when this singular God 
referred to throughout Scripture, if you have a King James Bible, you know the thee and the thy are singular, telling you that the Hebrew or Greek from which it was translated was a singular pronoun or a plural pronoun. The word thee and thy and thou is a singular term. God is always thou or thee. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It's always singular. God is singular. He is one God. And yet when this one God creates a special creation in his image, he says, let us create man in our image. There was a group of people that knocked on my door a few years ago. It's always dangerous to knock on a preacher's door sharing some other gospel on a Sunday afternoon when he just got out of the pulpit because we're generally wired. Come to the door. I'm actually pulling up in the yard after being here. And I knew that they were a part of a group of people that denied the deity of Christ. And so I go straight to that point. And I took them right here to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And I asked the question, whose image was Adam made in? Well, he's made in the image of God. When God said, let us make man in our image then, to whom was he speaking? And you suddenly heard the conversation go quiet. Because to concede he's talking to his son is to concede the divinity of his son. Let us make man in our image, in the image of God created he them. But notice this. Let us make man in our image. You have a complete unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the will of God, the purpose of God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are united in their creative purposes, in the rule over this world, in the salvation of God's people, and every other thing that God has ever seen fit to do in the world. Complete, perfect unity and harmony. And we see this on display in Genesis chapter 1. Next, we consider the basic unity between the three persons in general. That is to say that as Christ referred to himself, as he spoke about his relationship with the Father, he did so in such a way as to convey complete oneness. Now, this is not to say that the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Holy Spirit, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate persons. And they're clearly depicted as such in Scripture. Again, let us make man in our own image. But they are also of the same essence or same substance. And so, as you read in John chapter 10, Jesus and his Father are one. Now, that's in a very beautiful story. Very interesting story, a conversation between Jesus and those that did not believe, those that were not of his sheep, as you can read in verse 26. But as he begins to tell them that my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. There you see a transaction between two. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. But listen, I and my Father are what? One. Sometimes people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God incarnate. And I just wonder, have you read a Bible? And if so, what is it? Because very clearly here in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. How did the Jews interpret that? Now remember, these are unbelieving Jews. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, children, what that means, if you don't know or you're not familiar with the term, that was a form of execution in the Old Testament where they would literally take a man, pull him out in the streets. If he's guilty of a crime, they would hit him with rocks until he died. And sometimes, reading through the Old Testament in my Bible reading plan this year, I'm just kind of struck by some of these occurrences of, of wicked kings that tried to attack Israel. Not only would they stone him with stones after Israel defeated them in battle, but they would just keep piling rocks, and they'd walk off, and they'd leave the rocks, and you'd have the note, and this pile of rock remains until this day. It's always kind of interesting to me to think about, you know, what happened to this king of this country, maybe AI or another country? Well, the pile of rocks is still there. But they go to stone Jesus for saying, I and my Father are one. And he says, 
Many good works have I showed you from my Father. Which of those works do you stone me? For which of those works? Jesus answered and said, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, listen to this, makest thyself God. To say, I and my Father are one, is to say that we are of the same essence, the same substance. Christ is claiming deity and divinity. But you notice, and for the purpose of our study today, the complete harmony of oneness and purpose in the Trinity, Jesus says here that I and my Father are one. We are of the same essence. In John chapter 14, John 14 is a very beloved passage. In John 13, the communion service is held. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And then he begins, after Judas Iscariot goes away to betray him, to talk about the struggles and the suffering that they're about to behold and how their world is going to be turned upside down in just a few short hours. It would be after this that Jesus would depart into the garden and pray. And before the sun would come up, Judas would return with soldiers with spears and shields, and Jesus would be arrested. He would be tried three times. He would be beaten, scourged, and crucified. And these men and women who had followed him for some now three and a half years, their world came crumbling down around them. And so Jesus in John 14 begins this sermon, let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He begins to tell them that he's going to prepare a place for them. He talks to them about the Father. He talks to them about the Holy Spirit. He talks to them about the troubles that they would experience in the world, the persecution that they would experience in the world. At one point, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way to the Father is through Christ. Many times we run to our good works. We just finished a series here on With Men It Is Impossible from the Rich Young Ruler. We, we think that there's something that we can do to earn salvation or God's favor or God's grace, but the only way to the Father is Christ. He says, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Jesus says, if you've known me, you've, you've known my Father. And, and Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father. Now, if Philip had paid any attention any time that Jesus preached or taught or the synagogue elders had taught through the book of Exodus, he would know that no man in the flesh can see God and live. What would happen if me, you, anyone, with our own sinful eyes and our present state of being were to behold God in all of His glory? If our eyes were not burned up immediately for our sinfulness, we would be obliterated because God is that holy. This is why great change must come in the resurrection to enable us to stand before God, conforming us to the image of His Son. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. You don't know what you ask. And so many times these men didn't. Remember, it wasn't until after the crucifixion when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them that they had great understanding of all that is in God's Word and God's purposes for them and for the church and the gospel. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? In other words, have you not figured it out yet, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us thy Father? Now to be very clear, Jesus is the incarnation of the Word of God or the Son of God, and these three are one, but this one God is three persons. Jesus isn't saying that He is the same person in the Godhead as the Father. But what He is saying is that they are of the same essence, the same substance. They are verily God of gods. And if you have looked on Christ, 
then you have seen deity incarnate. Again, expressing the unity between the three persons of the triune God. Continuing to think about their unity. And I want this point to be one that is not only doctrinal but practical to you as well. Jesus always did the Father's will. Now, you and I don't always perfectly do the Father's will, do we? It's always funny if you talk to people and you talk about how we're all sinners and you kind of lure them with the bait. Have you ever told a lie? And if someone shakes their head no, you can say, well, you just did. So now you're guilty of thou shalt not bear false witness. We never, none of us have perfectly obeyed God's will at all times or at any time. And yet Jesus, in his life, perfectly obeyed God's will. Every command. In fact, in Matthew, he says that he would keep the law of God to a jot and a tittle. Those are funny words that we don't use commonly. They're transliterations of points of punctuation for them in that day. Every time we have twins born into Flint River, I suggest that as names. And, and no one ever takes me up on that, jot and tittle. I think that would be a great set of names. But anyway, this is why people don't come to me and ask me, Pastor, please let us know what we should name our children. I'm not on the naming committee, sadly. He keeps the law to a jot and a tittle. He keeps God's law completely, perfectly, in every way, in all things. And he did so... Because it was right, but also because he would suffer for us on the cross of Calvary, taking our sinfulness on himself as if he had lived our lives, taking our guilt and suffering our just deserts. And then he gives us his righteousness. He always kept the will of God. Notice this from John chapter 6. Verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus perfectly does the will of the Father that has sent him. That's a beautiful chapter, by the way, John chapter 6. I'd encourage you to, to read it and to meditate upon it. For the sake of time, we'll hit it and move on. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. We find a very moving example of this in Matthew chapter 26. Now this is also after the communion service, before Jesus was arrested, before he was beaten and tried and scourged and crucified. It's in that night when he prays all night in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. After communion, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn and they departed out. Then cometh Jesus with them, them here being Peter, James, and John. And by the way, Peter, James, and John are three men who are with Jesus more, more often than so many other men in Jesus' ministry. They are the closest men to him. They were with him everywhere, the Mount of Transfiguration, here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The ironic thing is, and you'll see this depicted here both at Transfiguration and here, they fall asleep. They fall asleep. Some of the biggest moments in their life, and they fall asleep. There's a lesson in that as well. Jesus cometh unto a place called Gethsemane, and he said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Now, to be fair to them, they've been with him all day, all night. It's a busy day. They had Passover. They had communion. There were times that these men would labor for 36 hours at a time, sometimes 48 hours at a time, ministering to people, toiling all night in a boat that's tossed in the sea. They did have a very, very difficult physical time so often. And here it is, the middle of the night. Jesus is praying all night, and they fall asleep. He took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee. This is James and John. They're the sons of thunder. And began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now to give you a disclaimer before we go into this passage, Jesus at no time is trying to get out of the crucifixion. 
He set his face as a flint, according to Isaiah. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he set judgment in the earth, also from Isaiah. He went there on purpose, the triumphal entry. Read Psalm 118. It gives it to you in advance. But what is happening here is the great dread of the moment. This perfect man, now he's God incarnate, but he's God incarnate. And so he is deity, but he is also humanity. And as a man, the dread of everything he was going to experience fills his mind. He says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. He takes his closest friends and he says, come pray with me. Come be with me. Come experience this moment with me. As they fall asleep, we read later in the narrative that angels appeared and ministered to him, which tells us that even if our friends fail us, God will send his angels and God will be with us. Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, it's very important language, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Not as I want, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. Whatever it is that you'll have me to do, I will do. Even if it's brutal, even if it's painful, there has never been a more painful, agonizing death in the history of the world than that of Christ Jesus. He suffered and he bled and he died. And beyond that, God the Father poured his wrath upon him judging him as if he had lived our lives, being one with him all through his life, and yet hiding his face, as it were, from him for a moment. When Jesus cries out upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken of his Father for you. That's why he has dread. The physical pain was bad enough. But separation from his Father in that sense, as a man as he hung there, our minds cannot fathom the mysteries of that day. In fact, for a period of three hours, God turns the sun off so that men can't even look upon what his son is experiencing. He cometh unto the disciples and he finds them asleep. He saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He does not have reference to his flesh, but theirs. The spirit is willing. They're born again men. They have the nature of Christ in them. But the flesh is weak. Paul would express that experience that we all have in the book of Romans chapter 7. When he would do good, evil is present with him. Because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. What's the solution? Pray that you enter not into temptation. He went again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. He came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. He left them and he went away and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he comes and he finds them asleep once again and he says, Take your rest, for behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. Behold, he that is... He is at hand that doth betray me. Jesus is always submissive to the will of the Father because there is complete harmony within the three-in-one God. Along those lines, how does the Father respond to the petitions and the prayers of Christ as Jesus went about this world ministering? Jesus always does the Father's will. Does the Father always hear the Son's prayers? John chapter 11 gives us the answer to that question. In John 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of a beloved friend named Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. You know, they send word that Lazarus is sick. Jesus tells his disciples, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that you would know that the Son of Man has power to raise the dead. And so Jesus tarries some four days, so Lazarus... The course of nature goes its way. This illness took his life. And Jesus now goes to him. And he says, let's go to Judea. 
The disciples are like, last time you were there, they tried to kill you. He says, I'm going to raise Lazarus. I'm, I'm going to see Lazarus. And they say, well, let us go with you and die. These are some pessimistic friends. Don't be the pessimistic friend. Don't be the pessimistic friend. We appreciate pessimists from time to time. You know, the optimist invents the airplane. The pessimist invents the parachute. But we, we sort of need that as a balance in life. But, but don't be the pessimist. Well, let's just go die with him. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. He tells him, take away the stone. Jesus lifts his eyes as the stone is rolled away. And he says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. What did he just say? I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it. It being roll away the stone, where have you laid him, the things that he had said up until that point, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. It's a very important miracle. Because from this we know that Jesus can do things that we cannot do. Jesus, through simply calling, can raise the dead. Now there's coming a day, the last day, when Jesus raises the dead. But I want you to notice that that same sweet voice of Christ has raised your soul from death and sin to life in Christ. The beautiful voice of Christ has called you from death to life, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. This miracle is so we understand and know that Jesus can raise the dead. But what does Jesus say when he prays to the Father? I know that you hear me always. I know that you hear me always. Jesus was always heard by his Father. In John 14, Jesus would tell the disciples that he will pray to the Father, verse 16, and the Father will give another comforter that he may even abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. What does Jesus say? I'll pray to my Father, and he'll send you another comforter, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in agreement on God's prerogatives in the world, as it were. Christ prays to the Father. The Father sends the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead working together. The Father always answers the Son's prayers. Now, this is a beautiful story. Matthew chapter 3 And it's one of the depictions of the Trinity in Scripture that's one of my favorites. We see the Trinity depicted on a number of occasions where Father, Son, and Spirit make a, an appearance or a representation in one place. Genesis 1 is one such example. Anytime someone is baptized, they're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's the three persons of the Trinity. Matthew chapter 3, we come to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an interesting experience. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is preaching repentance on the banks of the river Jordan. And as he preaches, sinners come and confess their sins and they're baptized. And the Pharisees come and... John tells them, you generation of vipers, you snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And he tells them, go away, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, and then you can come back and I'll baptize you. But he knew they were just doing that because it was a matter of popularity. John, the whole time, John the Baptist preaches that he's preparing the way for one who would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, having reference not only to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but also... God's vengeance and wrath that would come through Christ because in the second coming, God will judge the world through Christ and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, Matthew 3.12. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbid him. Now you can't blame John, right? I'm just a lowly preacher, preaching repentance, baptizing people, and here the Son of God comes to me to be baptized. What would, 
What would I do? And put yourself in those shoes if you're a gospel preacher and Jesus himself comes to you to be baptized. John says, I have need to be baptized of thee, and thou comest unto me. Now, the relationship between Jesus and John go back to their childhood. They're related, they're cousins. And when Jesus' wife enters into the room, when Elizabeth, John's mother, is carrying John, do you know what John the Baptist, the baby, does? The man who would eventually become John the Baptist? He leapt for joy in his mother's womb because the Holy Spirit had filled him from even before he was born into this world. That's amazing, isn't it? Jesus comes to John and he says, I've got need to be baptized of you and you come to me. Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Jesus always did what God commanded, including being baptized. Praise God! How can a man that had never kept baptism, like the thief on the cross, be with God in paradise? Because Jesus kept all the commandments of God for him. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Now listen to this. Lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We have the Father speaking from heaven as the Son is immersed in water, And as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, lands on him, lights on him. But I want you to notice what the Father says of the Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father was always perfectly pleased with the Son. There's complete harmony and unity in the Godhead. God is Always pleased, God the Father, with God the Son. I'll give you a couple more references. In the book of John chapter 15, where we were just moments ago, this is the upper room discourse, by the way. It's its name. The Holy Spirit, in the workings of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are born of the Spirit, John chapter 3 and verse 8. But the Holy Spirit is a part of our everyday lives, and... We pray to be filled with the Spirit, and we can be filled with the Spirit over and over again. Men of God were filled with the Spirit so many times in the Word of God. The Spirit would come upon them, as it were, and wonderful, amazing things happen. According to Ephesians 5, that's why we sing. That's why we have 30 minutes of singing on Sunday, because as we sing, we are filled with the Spirit. I hope that you felt the presence of the Holy Spirit as we sang hymns this morning. When the Comforter is come, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Notice the harmony in the purpose of the Godhead, of the Trinity. The Comforter is sent unto the disciples from the Father, even the Spirit which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of whom? Who does the Spirit testify of? The Spirit, the Holy Ghost, testifies of Christ. Now that's an important theological point as it relates to what the focus and the emphasis of a church service is to be as well. The people of God focus on Christ. When the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they didn't suddenly begin emphasizing and Speaking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit points them to Christ because this is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that they do is about Christ. But the Comforter is sent because Christ sends the Comforter from the Father. There's complete unity. There's complete harmony. I will close this morning from the book of Romans chapter 8. Now, by the way, if you want to go home and read Romans chapter 8, you won't find a more beloved passage of Scripture to me and a more comforting passage of Scripture than the entire 8th chapter of the book of Romans. But the passages that I want to consider today are verses 26 through 28. As we bring this thought of this unity within the Trinity to a close with a practical thought that 
Not only does the Son always do the will of the Father, and the Father always hears the Son, and the Spirit is sent from the Son as He prays to the Father, and the Spirit comes and testifies of the Son, the straight unity and harmony and all they do. Let us make, as we read from Genesis chapter 1, there is unity and harmony in the Trinity as it relates to God helping you, loving you, caring for you, and saving you, as we read in this beautiful passage. This brings it home to me. It makes it personal to me that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a will in the world for me and is even working together in my life for my good and for your good. If you don't go home today with a comforted heart, I don't know what I could do to help you more than this. Romans 8. Paul has written so much about the sufferings of this world. And what what sufferings have we seen over the past 18 months? Of every sort. Of every sort. He talks about the fact that in our suffering we're saved by hope. That is, we find deliverance and relief in our afflictions when we hope of that day of the resurrection. That we groan within ourselves, but even our sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Notice what he says, verse 26. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. The Spirit helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us, with groanings that cannot be uttered. That means, child of God, if you are in the middle of an affliction or a depression or a struggle or a turmoil and you can't but cry to God, the Spirit of God will articulate your needs to your Heavenly Father. Praise be God for that. I hope you're comforted by that thought because so many times we don't know what to say. I've shared the story with you many times when my mother... They found a mass in her brain years ago that turned out to be an unruptured aneurysm that had affected her daily life. She lost the sight in one eye, the hearing in one ear. Part of her body was numb. We didn't know what it was. There were times that I could do nothing else but weep and pray. There were no words that I could say. But you know, the Holy Spirit was there. And the Spirit made intercession. Would you believe that after a lengthy surgery on October 3rd, 2016, she came through that surgery and is still with us today. But when I faced that trial, it's about all I could do to just bow my knee and weep. But the Spirit heard. The Spirit made intercession. The Holy Spirit was there with groanings that cannot be uttered. And He, listen to this unity. This is the unity of the triunity, the Trinity on display. And he that searcheth the hearts. Now, who is it that searcheth the hearts? Well, according to Hebrews 4, Jesus, our high priest, is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That would be God the Father. And so... The Son knows these groanings that cannot be uttered that the Holy Spirit makes in intercession to us. And the Son, who sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high, makes intercession to His Father. Intercessions that are according to the will of God. You have a complete unity and agreement and harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as it relates to your afflictions, your struggles, your day-to-day life. No wonder then, in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. To be very clear, there are things in the world that obviously don't work together for our good. Satan doesn't work for your good. He certainly doesn't work together with God, and our own personal sins don't work for our good. But we know that whatever God does for us... Whatever He's doing in our daily lives, Father, Son, and Spirit works together in our lives for our good. 
The remainder of this chapter deals with things that begin before the world throughout time and even into the next world regarding our salvation, but also God being with us in our day-to-day lives. We'll close our sermon today with a simple reading of Romans 8.31. And I want you to think of everything that we've said and read about the unity of God and the unity in the Trinity that God is working together. There's a unity, a synergy even within the Godhead for our good that God is working in total agreement, Father, Son, and Spirit in our lives and in the eternal counsels of God. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, if this great trinity, this all-powerful divinity, God of gods, eternal of eternal, if he can be for us, then who can be against us? Can a pandemic take one single of God's redeemed from him? No. Can a wrathful king like Nero? No. Can a persecuting government, an unbeliever, a hater of God, an accident, a cancer, an illness? You read the rest of Romans 8. Paul lists every type of affliction known to man. And he's convinced that none of that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If this God be for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. Lord, you've revealed yourself in our hearts. You've revealed yourself in your word. And we just confess, Lord, that as the heavens are above the earth, so are your ways above our ways. We, Lord, we can't understand all the inner workings of the three-in-one Godhead, but what a beautiful picture we've seen today from your word on clear display from Scripture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working together, being fully cooperative and harmonious and intent and purpose, and all of that, Lord, for our good, for our sakes. Lord, we are humbled by that. We thank you so much for the blessing of knowing that and receiving that. And we just say, praise your name. It is in your name we pray, and amen.